Hi, welcome to the official podcast of the WCD. That's the World Congress of Dermatology, which will be held next in Singapore in 2023. I'm Dr. Etienne Wang from the National Skin Centre of Singapore, and I will be a host for this podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, and wherever else you get your podcast. In this podcast, I speak with dermatologists and skin researchers from all over the world to talk about all things dermatology. And this will be the last episode of this season of this podcast. And if you haven't listened to any of the past episodes, they're all available still up there on your podcast catcher. Alright, and today my resident co-host Ellie is back with a dumb topic for discussion. What do you have for us today, Ellie? Yep, so today I thought we could talk about sunscreens and it is quite a popular topic. You know, we talked about it before, but I thought we'll raise it again because just last month there was actually an article um, that raised a little bit of concern in the public. I'm not sure whether you've come across this article about sunscreens and zinc oxide. Yes, you send it to me. Very interesting. I mean, I think whenever it comes to sunscreen season, well, it's not really sunscreen season now, maybe in Australia, a lot of myths of sunscreen start popping up. You know, I even saw this on my newsfeed with titles of um, articles like sunscreens with zinc oxide become toxic after a couple of hours and zinc oxide in sunscreens destroy UVA protection. So I thought today we could talk about this article and where this came from so it might help our listeners and dermatologists know what to do if patients ask them about this article. Hmm. What, do you, what did this article find? Yeah, so this article essentially was published um, in October this year and essentially what the authors did was that they took some uh, small molecule sunscreens like chemical sunscreens and then they mixed it with zinc oxide and they actually found that after mixing it together, there was poor UV absorption, meaning the mixture was not effective anymore. Apart from just being ineffective, when they tested this mixture on embryonic zebrafish, they actually found that it resulted in toxicity, like morphological abnormalities um, in the zebrafish. A lot of scary things there. So um, it sounds like something that the media can easily take and run and scare a lot of people. Why do you think this might not be the case? When, even when I read it myself, I was quite uh, concerned and I even had friends sending it to me as well. But since this article was published, there have been quite a few critiques about whether the results of this study are actually relevant to us. So some of the critiques is that whether this mixture that they use is actually similar to what's commercially available. So for example, in this study, when the authors mixed the chemical sunscreen molecules like avobenzone, oxybenzone with um, zinc oxide, they actually mixed it with DMSO, which is a solvent that intentionally makes these insoluble chemicals to a more soluble form that's more effectively delivered to the zebrafish. So it raises the question of whether in its original form that's not so soluble, whether it would have the same toxicity. Also, um, the other thing was that in this study that the authors uh, mixed the zinc oxide, they actually used uncoated zinc oxide. Whereas in the commercial sunscreens, they usually use coated zinc oxide with silica, which is intended to make the zinc more stable. So again, whether or not this replicates what is in real uh, pharmaceutical practice is quite uh, debatable. Also, the last thing is that a lot of these um, cosmeceutical companies, they do do their own photostability testing. So if it's a reputable company, we may be able to assume that they have tested their products before and it's found to be stable. Yes, definitely. I think this is not something new, that the stability of zinc oxide is a, actually a well-known thing, and that's why all these sunscreens come stable. So, as you said, I think for sunscreens, it is really um, much better to get a reputable brand, because the reputable brands are the ones that can spend a lot of money on R&D, and they are the ones that are scared of class action lawsuits and will do everything to make sure that their product is safe, mm. <laughs> rather than the indie brands or the small brands, you know, the startups who are mixing their own sunscreens in the kitchen. Correct, correct. And actually, uh, 
big takeaway for me was that, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, chemicals that you apply on skin can interact with each other. So individually, the products that you buy may be safe, but if you mix it together, then it might end up with, you know, certain adverse events. So for me, it would be try not to apply too many different things together at the same time. Absolutely. And even your sunscreens, make sure that you get a sunscreen that is broad spectrum and with a chemical sunscreen in it as well. So it's formulated that way and not get it from two different sources and try to mix it together because that way the stability is affected. Mm, correct. Yeah. And of course, I mean, for people who still have concerns, then of course, physical protection with like umbrellas, hats, staying out of the sun altogether would also be important. Yes, all very good advice. All right, thank you, Ellie. Thank you for bringing this to our, to our attention. And I think this will be of interest to many of our listeners. No problems. Thanks, Etienne. Okay, thanks. Bye. See you next year. See you. <laughs> Dr. Mark Lebwell is a Waldman professor and a chairman of the Kimberley and Eric J. Waldman Department of Dermatology at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He is a past president of American Academy of Dermatology and the chairman emeritus of the Medical Board of the National Psoriasis Foundation. He is also the editor of the dermatology textbook Treatment of Skin Disease, now in its sixth edition and a staple of every dermatology resident. Welcome, Dr. Lebel, and thank you so much for taking time to come on my podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, and I will tell you a very recent job change. I'm now Dean for Clinical Therapeutics at Mount Sinai. Uh, and have turned over the reins to uh, Emma Gutman, who's a very capable uh, head of dermatology ah. now at Mount Sinai. Thank you so much for updating me. Emma Gutman, she is very impressive. I, I can't wait for to have her as a guest on my podcast too. <laughs> good, good. She's a superstar. <laughs> hmm. And I, I don't know whether you know, but we are academically related. You were on the thesis committee of my thesis supervisor, Dr. Angela Cristiano. Is that right? That's correct. I, uh, I uh, was on her PhD thesis. That is correct. Yes, yes. She speaks very, very highly of you. <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> and if there's something that I find uh, a very common theme among and in your research and hers is that uh, both your labs have very strong connections to patient societies. Um, hers is the Alopecia Areata and yours is the National Psoriasis Foundation. What do you think the role of the patient support and advocacy groups in clinical care and research? I think uh, they play such an important role uh, for several reasons. When the first biologic therapies were brought to the FDA, they would have actually gone down if it had not been for the National Psoriasis Foundation. I remember the FDA bringing out a toxicity expert who said, well, we are you know, playing with the immune system, and basically he called psoriasis a trivial disease without using the word trivial. And the Psoriasis Foundation then brought a patient who told her story, and there was literally not a dry eye in the room. It, everyone felt badly for her, and of course, the drug was approved unanimously. Uh, and by the time the second biologic came out, the FDA no longer did that. They stopped treating psoriasis like a trivial disease. Uh, and uh, I think that's a, a key role. The Psoriasis Foundation plays many other important uh, roles. They're probably the biggest sponsor of psoriasis research, which has then left led to NIH sponsorship of, uh, of studies. But, but they've nurtured many young investigators with those uh, grants that they give for research funds, some small and some very large. They, for example, are responsible for the discovery of the first psoriasis gene by Ann Bocock. That came from a tissue bank created by the National Psoriasis Foundation. So there are many things that the NPF does for patients. We have a problem in the U.S. that you probably don't have elsewhere in the world. We have, honestly, a corrupt system of how to get medications approved for our patients. The medications are obscenely expensive, and the NPF has paid, played a key role 
in establishing laws together with the AAD, laws around the United States, where now we have 29 states that have laws called step therapy laws, where if an insurance company will tell you that you have to fail a drug that's not good for your patient uh, before you get to the one that is the right one, uh, we have laws in 29 states that will uh, protect us against that so that doctors can appeal that decision and usually win. There are many, many other things that the Rice Foundation plays, many other roles, and uh, they're extraordinarily helpful to our patients. Yes, I agree. I think it's something that I really took away from being in Andrew's lab as well, that um, the patient voice is very important. Um, in Singapore, that's still growing. Our patients are not as well organized as the ones in America. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we are here, it's a, they play a key role. We wouldn't be where we are without them. You mentioned earlier the biologics being approved, and I think I listened to one of your other interviews where you're talking about TIC2 inhibitors in psoriasis. Is that something that you're using in clinic now? Uh, they're not yet. It's not yet approved. It is actually not a biologic. It's a small molecule, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and it's a very unique small molecule too because uh, what it does is it blocks the regulatory domain of tyrosine kinase 2 instead of the ATP binding domain which many of the other jacks bind. And by doing that, it becomes quite specific. And the nice thing about blocking TIC2 is that the key cytokines that are affected by TIC2 are IL-12 and IL-23. So it's very similar to to ustekinumab, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we know what that safety profile is. It does also block interferons, but the safety profile appears to be holding up where we're not seeing any impact on the bone marrow, impact on lipids, impact on the kidney, which we do see with the other jacks. So uh, it does look like we may be headed to a very safe oral medication that's highly effective. Uh, its, Its approval is anticipated in 2022. Good. I'm quite excited for that for alopecia areata as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what, in your opinion, is the next frontier in psoriasis research? Do you think um, beyond um, cytokines, is there anything else that you're keeping your eye on? So even in this next year, we anticipate a new biologic that blocks IL-17 ANF, which is called bimikizumab. Uh, we anticipate two new mechanisms of action with topical therapies that are not steroids, have almost no side effects, uh, and yet are as, good, as effective as potent steroids. One is called roflumilas, the other is called tepinrof. Uh, and again, their uh, approval is anticipated over approximately the next year. You know, there are still diseases where we need help. We certainly need help in alopecia areata. Um, you know, the patients who have alopecia totalis or universalis, getting them to regrow their hair has been difficult. The jacks will be a first step. So I agree with you there. But if you look at the numbers, we're not hitting anywhere near a majority of patients having no disease. Mm-hmm. So we still need uh, more effective treatments and safer treatments for alopecia areata. Um, ruxolitinib was just approved in the U.S. for atopic dermatitis. Uh, it has mm-hmm. been a, a very, very promising. Uh, I would say right now in terms of topical therapy, the best thing we have for um, vitiligo. And I think that that's going to be, again, a first step. It's great for vitiligo, but we patients still have to be treated for very long periods of time. To, and we're still talking about repigmentation rates of 75% as being a success. Now, you know, for patients, if you repigment 75% and you still have that depigmented patch on your face, that's not good enough. So uh, we still have a ways to go uh, there. And I suspect that we will have 
uh, innovative topical combination therapies, ruxolitinib plus something else that will uh, help patients repigment faster. Hmm. I also see in your bio that under your watch, Mount Sinai had the first skin of color clinic. How did that come about? Um, so that really, we owe credit to um, St. Luke's Hospital uh, and Roosevelt Hospital. Uh, Vince DeLeo, who was the chair of the com- combined St. Luke's Roosevelt program, started a skin of color clinic uh, decades ago. I believe the first head of it was Susan Taylor, who's a prominent uh, African-American dermatologist and a very effective leader. What happened during that period of time was Mount Sinai and St. Luke's and Roosevelt merged. We essentially were the name on the clinic at that point. Uh, Yes, we did have the first skin of color clinic, and it is still in operation uh, at Mount Sinai. It was run for years by uh, Andrew Alexis, and we have a new head of the clinic now. Uh, but we continue to have a major interest in skin color. Hmm. Do you think it is a big of problem as the New York Times made it out a couple of years ago that there's a diversity issue in dermatology? I, I vaguely recall that article, and I think that there are some issues in skin of color uh, which have many factors to them. So let me give you one where uh, one of my current residents is actually working on the PASI score for skin of color patients. Um, it is very difficult to assess erythema in skin of color. Mm-hmm. When you treat patients with the same drugs that work for Caucasian patients, uh, we do see actually uh, dramatic improvements in quality of life. Yet the easy scores and passy scores don't reflect that as well. So, for example, the easy score uh, when you break down, I, I actually recently looked at the data for one of the new topical therapies coming out in psoriasis, and the data were not quite as good for African-American patients as they were for uh, Caucasian patients, yet the impact on quality of life was just as good. So I think this is an area where patient-reported outcomes, what the patient feels, has a significant uh, role. I think we're going to do a lot better with patient-reported outcomes than we do with objective assessments like the PASI score or EASY score. That's extremely interesting. I can't wait to see that paper. And uh, have you ever been to Singapore? I have not. I am so looking forward to the World Congress. Uh, very yes, excited yeah. about it. And, you know, and honestly have read a, uh, a lot about uh, the politics of Singapore, the way it rose from almost nothing when I was a child to being this extraordinary country that other countries look up to as an example for how they can correct the problems they have. So uh, I'm very excited about going. Yes, and hopefully we'll have a nice in-person conference in 2023, and I can't wait to meet you at a conference. I look forward to it. Well, thank you so much for taking time today to speak to me, Dr. Lebor. My pleasure, Etienne. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye now. <laughs> okay. Bye. And that was the last episode of Season 1 of the official podcast of WCD. I'm going to be taking a break for December, so I'll see you in the next year. And don't forget, you can listen to all our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, iTunes, and wherever else you get the podcast. So don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment on iTunes, and share this with a friend, all right? So until next time, stay safe and use sunblock. <laughs>